All the teachings of the Bible are important, but some teachings are more important. And traditionally, the church has called the most important teachings of Holy Scripture first-level issues. First-level issues are those teachings most central to Christianity. One God in three co-eternal, co-equal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus sacrificially died in the place of sinners. Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead. We can't deny any of those teachings and be Christians in any biblical sense of that word. Those are all first level issues. What the church has traditionally referred to as second level issues are those doctrinal positions which create reasonable boundaries between brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Second level issues will determine what sort of church you're a member of. Issues like the proper candidates for and mode of baptism. Church government. God's sovereignty and salvation. The role of men and women in the church and in the family. Those are all secondary issues. Now, they may be secondary, but your elders would be prepared to argue from the scriptures at, at great length <laughs> on all of those matters. But you certainly don't have to agree with New City's polity or your elders' polity on those issues to be a Christian. At New City, we believe in believers' baptism by immersion. Elder-led, congregational-ruled church government. We're reformed in our soteriology. That means our doctrine of salvation. We believe that God is sovereign and that human beings are responsible. And we're complementarian. Now, you may be an Arminian, Episcopalian, Pedo-Baptist, Egalitarian. And so, as there is principal disagreement on all those fronts, it will be difficult for you to be a member of this church. But, by God's grace in Toronto, there are other gospel-believing churches to choose from. But if you were to stay here, you'd be pulling out your hair every single service, I think. Uh, those issues are all secondary, but secondary issues are important. What the church has traditionally now called third-level issues are disputable matters. Issues such as, I'll just have a list here, some of you have heard this before. How should Christians treat Sunday? May Christians go to a restaurant after a church service. Maybe shop at a grocery store on a Sunday. Maybe play sports on Sunday. Maybe watch sports on television. Are we allowed to work on a Sunday? Some Christians say yes. Others say no. Both have their reasons. Entertainment. Should good Christians watch TV? If so, how much programming per week? Maybe watch movies or read novels like the Harry Potter series. Should we listen to secular music? Again, some Christians say yes, some will say no. Watching mixed martial arts for entertainment, is that a legitimate form of athleticism or is it just a brutal blood sport that Christians should steer clear of? Language. What constitutes bad language? Because the Bible says there is such a thing as bad language. What, what about euphemisms like shoot or darn? Should Christians watch movies that curse? Dress. What's appropriate? What's modest? Makeup and jewelry. What kind and how much? How tight is too tight? How short is too short? What should our swimming attire look like? One piece, two piece, a baggy t-shirt over it all? Should women and men swim together? Smoking and drinking. May Christians drink in moderation? May a Christian enjoy the occasional cigar? Money. Is it okay to be in debt? How much should we put into savings now? And how much should we give away immediately? Should we live as frugally as possible? Should Christians invest in cryptocurrency? Or is that merely glorified gambling? Should Christians leverage borrowed capital to undertake an investment? Holidays. May Christians celebrate Halloween. May we celebrate Christmas with a tree and presents. What about Easter egg hunts? 
Should Christian parents perpetuate the Santa Claus myth? Having children. When should a married couple start having babies? How many kids should a good Christian couple have? Is it okay to use some forms of non-abortive birth control? Raising children. When do we start disciplining? How should we discipline? Education. Public, private, Catholic, homeschool, Christian school. Guy-girl relationships, dating or courtship, what about Hinge and Tinder? What level of parental involvement should there be? How far is too far in a physical relationship? Capitalist versus socialist society, global warming, fair trade coffee, playing video games, homeopathic medicines versus antibiotics, body piercings and tattoos. I'll stop there. That list could be easily, easily expanded, and I understand how it is. Some of those examples may sound very strange to you. We can hear some of those disputable categories on that list and think, wow, I, I had no idea that was, a, that was an issue for some Christians. Some Christians don't celebrate Halloween. They don't, they don't celebrate Christmas. I didn't know that. Some Christians don't go to a restaurant on Sunday. Well, I didn't know. They don't, they don't tell their kids about Santa. They don't watch MMA. Well, I didn't know that. But the temptation can be to take it one step further, one simple step further, and think, sheesh, those Christians, Christians like that, they're just legalistic and stupid. No, the Bible tells us that's sin. It's schismatic, it's divisive. Or maybe you're coming from the other side. Maybe you're coming from the stricter side. Maybe you're thinking, yeah, you're right. I don't have freaky body piercings and tattoos all over my body. Or watch movies about witches and wizards and put my kids into the godless public school system. Or leverage debt as a means of investment. How could a professing Christian do those things and still think that they're giving a good Christian witness? The people who do those things, they're bad Christians. No. Paul says that, too, is divisive. It's sin. It sows division in the church, which is supposed to be the pillar and protector of the truth of the gospel. And Paul devotes 10% of the book of Romans to this topic. It's what Romans 14 and a good chunk of 15 is all about. And I want us to turn there. I want us to turn to Romans 14. The first half of our sermon today is going to be tracing out the arguments of this passage. And it might be wise also to keep the PDF that was sent out open on your phone as we do so. If you look at your church announcements at the very bottom, there's a handout that you need to be looking at perhaps. It shows the similarities between Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. And I'm basing a lot of this on, on Maselli's excellent book about the conscience. I want to give credit where it's due. Some of you have heard this before, but now don't misunderstand me. It's, it's good. It's a good thing to have an opinion, opinion on every one of those examples that I just listed. Right? I, I certainly, I certainly have an opinion about Harry Potter and MMA and cigars, and I feel my opinion is good, and I feel my opinion is right. Those issues are all important. But the question is, how important are they? Those are all disputable matters on which members of this church can disagree, but still enjoy, in fact, we must, we must enjoy full love, full unity, and full Christian fellowship. Those are all third-level issues. Beloved, if a member of New City disagrees with us, on a third level issue, an issue that isn't compromising the gospel, an issue that's not hindering the faith of our church, then we need to learn to live with those differences and be in unity. This is just a fact of the Christian life, and it's going to remain a fact until the Lord returns in glory. Christians in the same church will disagree, and we're allowed to disagree. We should expect to disagree on any number of debatable issues. If everyone had the same conscience standards, then we wouldn't need passages like Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8, which teach people with differing consciences how to get along in the church. Some brothers and sisters who are weak in faith will adopt a stricter stance. Brothers and sisters who have a stronger faith will be more free. But we need to be very careful. We need to define those terms, like I just said. A Christian whose faith is weak means they have a weak 
what? Conscience. Now, most people probably think of the conscience as the, the shoulder angel, right? If you've ever watched the Donald Duck cartoon, I think every single <laughs> episode of Donald Duck, there's a shoulder angel or a demon on each one. So comic strips, movies, they often depict a shoulder dressed in white on a person's right shoulder, and then a demon dressed in red and carrying a pitchfork on the person's left shoulder. The angel represents the person's conscience, and the demon represents temptation. The angel attempts to persuade the person to do right. The demon tempts the person to do wrong. Well, thankfully, we're not left to popular perception in regard to conscience. We have the Bible to teach us about what the conscience is and what it is not. And the word conscience occurs twice in Acts, 20 times in all of Paul's letters, five times in the book of Hebrews, and three times in 1 Peter. This is a biblical concept. Let me give you a, a definition here. The conscience is our awareness, our sense, our consciousness of what we believe to be right and wrong. I'm going to repeat that, but notice how subjective the language is. The conscience is our awareness, our sense, our consciousness of what we believe to be right and wrong. And Paul claims certain Christians, uh, he calls certain Christians weak because their conscience won't allow them to do something that's not inherently wrong. Their weakness is related to their convictions about what their faith allows and prohibits. And so their position on certain disputable third-level matters are quite strict. In the Romans 14 context, the passage we're looking at first, the disputable issues center around the observance of special Old Testament days, eating unclean meat, unclean in the sense of pork and shellfish, kosher diet in other words, and drinking wine. These are probably, they're probably Jewish Christians, people who refrain from certain foods and observe holy days out of continuing loyalty to the law of Moses. And just, I need to set up a difference here that's very clear in our minds from the get-go. There is, there is a difference when Paul talks about meat. In 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, he talks about meat in Romans 14 and 15. There are two different kinds of meat. Um, the Romans 14 meat is kosher, right? Or not kosher. So it's been with the law of Moses. First Corinthians 8 through 10 is meat that's been sacrificed to idols. So you're going to see meat in both those passages, but it's a different kind of meat uh, scenario, if you will. <laughs> but uh, so Paul says this in Roman in, in the in Romans, there are Jewish Christians who are observing holy days and they're not eating certain foods. And he says that their faith is weak. They're unable to accept for themselves the truth that faith in Jesus Christ implies liberation from certain Old Testament and Jewish ritual requirements. Now, perhaps they're free and they're strong on other third-level disputable matters. Perhaps those Roman Jews are watching MMA and they're, 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 they're drinking beer and, and they're letting their kids go trick-or-treating dressed up like witches and wizards. And, but on these particular matters of eating kosher or not, they're weak. Their faith is weak. And so Paul commands in Romans 15, verse 1, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. And who are the strong? The strong are Christians whose conscience allows for more liberty. In the Romans 14, 15 context, these are probably Gentile Christians, people who believe correctly that the coming of Jesus has brought an end to the ritual requirements of the Mosaic Law. And so one of the major points Paul makes in Romans 14 is this. Our freedom to eat meat, to eat pork, is theologically correct. But we mustn't allow our freedom to do so to destroy the faith of a weaker brother or sister. Note what Paul writes in verse 13. This is Romans 14, 13. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Why? 
Because judging Christians is God's business. It's not our business. Who are you, Christian, to judge somebody else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. Romans 14, 4. Instead, verse 13b, and Paul is speaking now to Christians with a strong, free conscience. Make up your mind, make a conscious decision not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And that is a shocking, shocking thing to say to a Christian. It's shocking because the word stumbling block is always used in the New Testament with reference to someone's spiritual downfall. The Apostle Paul is telling believers who possess a strong faith on certain disputable matters, Christian, make a conscious decision not to be the cause of another Christian's spiritual ruin. A weaker Christian's spiritual ruin. You think, what? No, no, but Paul, we're, we're talking about disputable, third-level issues. We're talking about gospel liberty. Where, where's this? We're talking about Harry Potter. <laughs> you know, where's this spiritual ruin stuff coming from? Just hold that thought. Look at verse 14. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. So, there we have it. That's from the lips of the Apostle Paul himself. All food is clean. No food is unclean. Kosher food laws no longer apply, just as Jesus told the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10. <clears throat> but, these Roman Gentile Christians... They've never given the abolition of Old Testament food laws a second thought in their life, have they? I mean, they, they came into the church post-Acts 10. And that they're eating the same food that they've eaten all their lives. Nothing's changed at all. But a tectonic shift, salvation historical shift occurred in Acts chapter 10, didn't it? I mean, uh, kosher food laws were done away with. And Gentiles now are coming into the church. Gentiles filled with the Spirit. They don't need to be circumcised. And Paul is gravely concerned about the situation on the ground in Rome. He's arguing, yes, yes, the food you're eating is clean, but some believers in your church, the weak in faith Jewish believers who've eaten kosher all their lives, there's still a lot of confusion on this issue. Look at this concluding assertion in verse 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat. That means they're condemned by their conscience. Because their eating is not from faith. And everything that does not come from faith is sin. So do you see? I mean, that's Paul's great concern. That, that's how he can bring up uh, stumbling blocks of spiritual ruin and the destruction of personal faith in the context of third-level disputable matters. It's not out of place at all. It makes perfect sense. Paul's thinking of the possibility that the strong believers' exercise of gospel liberty might create pressure on the weak believers. Create pressure to do what? To do what their conscience is telling them not to do. To eat pork. To eat shellfish. And so fall into sin and potential spiritual ruin. They, look at verse 14 again. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Friends, what we have there in that verse is full-blown, is a full-blown declaration of gospel liberty. And I'm sure that as this uh, letter was read aloud in the church in Rome. All the strong, free, Gentile Christians gave a hearty, Amen, brother. Verse 14, that's what I like to hear. And maybe they gave a few meaningful elbow jabs to their Jewish friends that were sitting beside them. Did you hear that? You hear what said? I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. Put that into your legalistic pipe and smoke it. But then Paul immediately qualifies the statement. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then to that person it is unclean. Which means the strong Christian in the church in Rome, they're, they're facing something of a paradox. 
Some foods are both clean and unclean simultaneously. It depends on the conscience of the person eating the food. Each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. Verse, verse 5 of chapter 14. So here's the, here's the question, and this gets to our 1 Corinthians 8 text today as well. How should the strong behave when two consciences, weak and strong, are in a collision course on a disputable matter? We're told in the Word of God that the strong Christian, the strong Christian must defer to the weaker Christian's scrupulous conscience, even though the weaker Christian is mistaken. That's what God would have us do, brothers and sisters. The strong Christian is not allowed to impose their view on the weak Christian or flaunt their own freedom, right? Or make the other Christian feel stupid or legalistic and through a kind of Christian peer pressure make them violate their weak conscience and so indulge in pork chop and shellfish themselves. Paul warns us that the results of that can be total spiritual ruin. Those are the stakes. People differ in their ability to internalize truth. People differ in their ability to internalize truth. Now, Jesus' death and resurrection brought an end to the covenant law of Moses. That was... Uh, standard early Christian teaching. And at the intellectual level, these weak Jewish Christians in Rome, they understood this. Right, don't, don't make a mistake here, alright? They're not eating kosher in order to add to the salvation already secured for them in Jesus Christ. Like what was happening in Galatia with circumcision, right? Uh, that was a first order gospel issue. This is a third-level disputable matter. But all of us have our traditions. All of us come to Christ with our own cultural baggage, our different upbringings, our different life experiences, our unique God-given personalities and temperaments, our own strengths, our own weaknesses. <coughs> and sometimes, as Doug Moo helpfully describes it, it can be hard to existentially grasp the truth particularly when the truth runs counter to long and strongly held traditions. In this case, traditions basic to a Jew's identity as an old covenant child of God. Sometimes it takes time for the teaching of Scripture to inform the conscience of the Christian, to calibrate the Christian's conscience. We'll look at that next week. Now, it takes time for the conscience to be brought under the Lordship of Jesus Christ to be calibrated by the standard of Holy Scripture. It's a lifelong process for all of us, but part of that process is understanding that Christian love does not insist on its rights. See, that's the soil in which the weaker Christian's conscience grows strong. Christian love from, from the strong that does not insist on its rights. And we have to understand that. 1450. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. And verse 15 is a key verse. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat. Now stop for a moment. That this, this distress or pain or grief that the strong Christian causes the weak believer isn't merely annoyance. Right? It's not irritation. It's not like, oh man, I can't believe that guy's investing in crypto. I can't believe it. Like, it's, so, it's so annoying. No. no, Paul's talking about the pain and distress the weak experience after having violated their own conscience on a disputable matter. It's distress related to Paul's earlier warning about spiritual downfall. 
What's happening in verse 15 is that the weak, strict Christian has been emboldened. They've been emboldened by the loveless, loveless actions of the strong, free Christian, coupled with the strong Christian's attitude of superiority and scorn to all the weak who think differently, to act against the dictates of their sensitive conscience, to not act in faith on that matter. It's like a boyfriend sitting on the couch with his girlfriend and pushing her physically further than she wants to go. He basically browbeats her into it. And it's the same thing here. Through the influence of my loveless, self-centered freedom, my weak brother or sister has crossed over into a practice their conscience condemns them for. And now, because of my lack of love, they suffer the distress, the grief, the pain of that knowledge. They violated their conscience. They did not act in faith. What a terrible, terrible thing to know you are responsible for, Christian. It's a serious matter. You see, this sort of sin on the part of the strong will not stand in the church of Jesus Christ. And so God, through Paul, issues a direct command to the strong at the end of verse 15. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Jesus has already paid the supreme price for that weak brother or sister. He, he's died on the cross on their behalf. How then can the strong Christian refuse to pay the insignificant price of a minor and occasional restriction in their diet when in that weak Christian's presence. I mean, does their arrogant lovelessness extend that far that they have to behave that way? Do you see? This is precisely what Satan wants the strong at our church to believe, to knowingly insist on flagrantly exercising gospel freedom before the weak in Christ. To knowingly persist in advancing our views on disputable matters and our conversations with the weak brother or sister. To knowingly violate the biblical command to love one another. That's what Satan wants more than anything else. Christian, I need to ask, is your gospel freedom governed by love? Maybe there's a situation in your life that you need to address Maybe there's someone in the church you need to talk to and ask for their forgiveness. Maybe you need to lay down your rights and put others first for the sake of the gospel. All right. At long last, at the halfway point of the sermon, we come now to 1 Corinthians 8, our text. Both with all, uh, but with all that Romans 14 background already established. We're going to fly through this passage, so don't worry. You can see it on your PDF. Uh, the two texts deal with almost exactly the same thing. The similarities are striking. And I, I apologize that on that PDF in your announcements that the, uh, it's out of focus. It's blurry. It's actually at the source that was blurry, not something that we did. So I'm sorry about that. We're going to go over this passage twice. The first time from an altitude of 30,000 feet as we consider the historical, cultural context of 1 Corinthians 8. <clears throat> and then very quickly, up close, verse by verse. Look at your bulletin, where it says problem number six. 1 Corinthians 8 to 11, 1. Right? So it's a big chunk. That's three chapters of this book. Some Corinthian Christians are eating food offered to idols in a way that stumbles their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. That's chapter 8. Or, chapter 10, a different scenario, in a way that is a fellowship with demons. So apparently, some Christians in Corinth, secure in their knowledge that idols are nothing at all, and that all meat has been created by the one true God, and so it's good to eat, even if it has been offered to an idol, they feel wonderful liberty to eat whatever they like, wherever they like. They don't care. Others in the church converted perhaps from a life bound up with pagan superstition, detect the demonic 
in that idol. And they think it's unsafe to eat food that has been offered to an idol. So here's the issue. Was it always idolatrous for Corinthian Christians to eat meat offered to an idol in an idol's temple? Was it always idolatrous? And Paul weighs in authoritatively on that issue. And his answer is the correct answer. He says that the Christian Corinthians have a right to eat food sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple. Which means it's a third level issue. It's not always idolatrous for Corinthian Christians to eat meat offered to idols in an idol's temple. It's not morally wrong to do so. However, that's not the end of the matter for Paul. There's still the other person to think about. The weaker brother or sister. They still need to be loved because they're freaked out as they see this. Chapter 8, 9 to 10. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, that is, knowledge that an idol is not real, and that there is only one God, verse 4, for if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols like against their own conscience? They believe it's wrong to do so. They don't think they should be there. But there they are. They're, they're chowing down in the temple, emboldened by your loveless example. The thing is, Paul later appears to say that eating food offered to an idol in an idol's temple is fellowship with demons. In chapter 10, there's a shift. It's not a third level issue in chapter 10. It's not a matter of conscience. It's objective sin. It's objective idolatry. It's fellowship with demons. Look at 1019. Do I mean that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. So, okay, what's going on? How do we harmonize chapter 8 and chapter 10? Is it idolatry or isn't it? Is it a matter of conscience or isn't it? Well, that's why we need to understand uh, some of the historical cultural context of eating meat off of the idols in first century Corinth. We need to know this. The hub of pagan religious life in the first century was the temple. Uh, but people didn't gather regularly at pagan temples for worship services like Christians today gather regularly uh, in church buildings. The temple itself housed the image of the god, small g god. And when people sacrificed animals, they typically did so outside at the front of the temple. And then after sacrificing animals to their idol, pagans would save some of that meat either to eat on the temple grounds or to sell to vendors who would then sell it in the public marketplace. And actually, a large percentage of the meat available for consumption in Corinth would have been previously offered to an idol, unless you had your own cow that you killed, you know, in your backyard or something. And other kinds of food were also susceptible to being offered to idols, even fruits and vegetables. And they're all being offered out in the marketplace. However, people in the ancient Greco-Roman world ate in an idol's temple for a variety of reasons. And this is the thing I don't think we understand. On one end of the spectrum, they ate in the temple to participate in explicitly religious pagan ceremonies. Ceremonies that Paul calls demonic in chapter 10. So think of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, right? That sort of stuff. The other end of the spectrum was simply to eat meat. Like we might eat meat in a restaurant today. Meat was a treat 
in these days, meat was not a staple of most people's diets. And so people often ate meat in the pagan temple for non-religious business meetings or on special occasions and non-religious social gatherings, such as celebrating a person's birthday. There's all sorts of historical documents attesting to this. And when they did go to the temple for a business meeting, for a birthday party, such meals did not begin with a demonic religious ceremony of sacrifice and prayer. What I'm saying is, meals in the temple could be merely social, it depends on the occasion, which doesn't mean Paul thinks that the Corinthian Christians should regularly eat food offered to idols in an idol's temple. <coughs> the apostle argues in chapter 8 that they should be willing to give up that right for the sake of their weaker brothers and sisters. So as you can see in your bulletin, Paul prohibits the Corinthian Christians from eating meat sacrificed to idols in three contexts, and he allows it in two. And, and, and note the frequent use of the word right. And this is, this is going to be the major theme of 1 Corinthians 8, 9, 10. Your rights. Your rights. Number one, yes, you have the right to eat meat, sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple when it's not part of the pagan religious ritual. That's chapter 8. Two, no, give up your right to eat meat, sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple if it would harm a fellow Christian. Also, chapter 8. No. Number three. Do not eat meat sacrificed to idols in an idol's temple as part of a pagan religious ritual. For to do so would be to participate in demon worship. Four. Yes, you have the right to eat meat sacrificed to idols that you can buy in the meat market and eat in your home or the homes of your neighbors. Five. No. Give up your right to eat meat sacrificed to idols in another person's home if a person informs you that the meat was sacrificed to idols and thus implies that they think you, as a Christian, would object to eating the meat because that would be participating in idol worship. You're looking out for their conscience. Okay. With all of that under our belt and with just a few minutes remaining, Let's finally work our way through the text. Don't worry, we're going to go as fast as lightning here. Verse 1. Now about food sacrificed to idols, we know that we all possess knowledge. And notice how that phrase is in quotations. Paul is quoting the Corinthians. We all possess knowledge. And the knowledge the Corinthians possess is most likely what Paul specifies in verse 4. An idol is not real, and there is only one God. So in theory... What great knowledge to have, correct? I mean, how right, how true, how doctrinally true that is. So, let's live our lives accordingly. Let's go to the pagan temple and order the meat feast platter. Well, how does Paul respond to that? He warns the Corinthians that the knowledge they claim to have is making them proud. Yes, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. But whoever loves God is known by God. Now people commonly quote Paul as saying knowledge puffs up to warn others that gaining more knowledge can make one proud. And, and that's certainly true. I mean, you just have to look at, I think, social media. I had no idea. I was friends with so many polymaths. But it's not what Paul's arguing here. Paul's arguing that some of the Corinthians are using their knowledge about food offered to idols incorrectly, and their insufficient knowledge is making them proud. In contrast, if they combine their knowledge with love, they would humbly build others up. And that's what this is all about. It's about the other, the weaker brother or sister. True love is not puffed up, because it's not self-seeking. Knowledge minus love equals destruction. 
And in passing, let me remark that this is an excellent equation for Christians on both sides of the current COVID-19 debate. Knowledge minus love equals destruction. Sure, knowledge is important. It belongs to the gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 12, verse 8. But love is even more important. People who proudly think they know it all, they lack love. Love for God and others characterizes Christians. Those who are known by God, that is, those whom God has chosen or elected. So Christians should not misuse their knowledge in unloving ways. While knowledge makes us feel important, it's love, brothers and sisters, that strengthens the church. And Paul then applies this to the situation at hand. Verse 4. So then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. We know that, in quotes, an idol is nothing at all in the world. And that, quote, there is no God but one. Yeah, we're all agreed about that. Theologically, that's correct. <clears throat> Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. Idols are merely so-called gods, right? They don't exist for real. They're nothing at all. And there is only one God. There isn't many gods. There's just one. The Father. He is the source and goal of everything. And Jesus, the Son, He is the creator and the sustainer of everything. Which means this passage supports the truth that Jesus is God. This is one of those texts that we can appeal to with our, our Muslim friends or our Mormon friends. There is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came. And through whom we live. That's a prerogative of God alone. Verse 7. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. That is, that an idol is nothing at all in the world, that there is only one God. And then what he says here. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god. And since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Some Christians, probably former pagans who were recently converted, they don't share the knowledge of verses 4 through 6. Instead of recognizing that idols don't actually exist, they think of the food as actually sacrificed to a god because they associate the food with idolatry. And as a result, they defile their conscience because it's misinformed and thus oversensitive. Do you see? They hold to a theologically incorrect conviction. That's what it means to have a weak conscience. Verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. The theologically correct view is that what one eats or does not eat doesn't inherently gain God's favor. No one is superior, no one is inferior before God based on the food they eat. And now we come to Paul's big wrap-up, and it's Romans 14 all over again. That's why I spent the time I did preaching half the sermon of Romans 14. Look at verse 9. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge eating in an idol's temple... Won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? It could build up or embolden their weak conscience to sin by copying the strong eater, the loveless eater in this sense. Verse 11, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, quote unquote. When you sin against them in this way, and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, 
I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause them to fall. You see, these strong Christians must be careful not to cause their weak brothers and sisters to suffer spiritual harm by their insistence on exercising their liberty on disputed matters. That sort of insistence, it violates the essence of the kingdom, which is to manifest love and concern for one another. In love, the strong Christian puts their weaker brother or sister first. Turn back to Romans 14 again. Look at verse 20. Do not destroy the work of God. Don't destroy the unity and peace of the church for the sake of food. Verse 21. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or to do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. Which means if we're seeking first the peace and edification of New City Baptist Church, then we'll, glad, we'll gladly refrain from activities that might cause a weaker Christian to suffer spiritual harm. And Paul clearly intends to make the principle as widely applicable as possible by adding in verse 21, or to do anything else. This isn't just kosher food stuff. It's anything that could cause our weak brothers or sisters to fall. They're emboldened by our loveless actions to copy us. So let me conclude with a word to the Christian of weak conscience. I've been talking to the strong Christian for the majority of our time. Let me turn now to the weak. And again, we're all weak and strong on different disputable matters, aren't we? I mean, one Christian has all sorts of body piercings and tattoos, but she won't perpetuate the Santa Claus myth to her kids or watch her play sports on Sunday. That's one conscience at work in the same person. It's complex. Or another Christian won't take their kids trick-or-treating or read Harry Potter novels, but they have no problem smoking a cigar and enjoying a glass of scotch. That's one conscience at work in the same person. We're not necessarily weak or strong right across the board. That's what I'm saying. But Christian, if the position you adopt on a particular third-level disputable matter is quite strict, then know that you are not in a position to bind other Christians' conscience to rules that don't come from God. That's not what either Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 8 is teaching. The strong in the church are never the hostages of the weak. Ever. The church is not bound to the lowest common denominator type of theological understanding. Good grief. What a, what a disaster that would be if that were the case. Let me be blunt. Let me be very blunt. If a brother or sister doesn't like my freedom on a disputable matter, that's their problem. The weaker brother or sister, weak though they may be, they need to obey the Bible. Romans 14. Those who are strict must not be judgmental toward those who have freedom. That's Romans 14, 3 and 4. Each believer must be fully convinced of their position in their own conscience. And I am. All that I do is for the glory of God. So you cannot judge me, sister. You're not my master, brother. Jesus is my master. And one day you too will stand before his judgment seat and he will judge you. If you have taken upon yourself a prerogative of God alone and judged me for my freedom in Jesus Christ. And I'll also say this to the weak Christian. Your brothers and sisters at New City must know that this or that is a conscience matter for you. I could never guess in a million years that your faith won't allow you to take your kids trick-or-treating or read Harry Potter novels, or drink non-fair trade coffee, or get tattoos, or participate in the public school system, unless you tell me. Which presupposes close, personal relationships and interactions within the body of Christ at New City, doesn't it? I have to know these things. So let me repeat. If our brother or sister doesn't like my freedom on a certain disputable matter, 
That's their problem. But if a brother or sister falls into sin because of my freedom, if I in any way embolden a weaker brother or sister to violate their conscience on a matter, that is my problem. And it's a big problem. So what I want every Christian here to do is pray to God for spirit-given insight. Examine your life, Christian. Examine your relationships. Ask yourself, am I encouraging a brother or sister with weak faith through some sort of overt or even subtle Christian peer pressure to indulge in an activity I know their conscience forbids? An activity that cannot, they cannot do in faith for the glory of God. Am I bringing spiritual harm to that person through the exercise of my loveless freedom? Am I ostentatiously flaunting my liberty on a particular matter that so deeply offends someone that they might turn away from the faith altogether? God forbid. Jesus gave up his freedom. Jesus gave up his life for this person. Yet I'm so arrogant, I'm so selfish, I'm so loveless, I'm so divisive that I am unwilling to lay down my freedom for their sake. Paul places primary onus of responsibility on the strong to restrict their own freedoms for the sake of others. In other words, it is never a sufficient question for the Christian to ask, what am I allowed to do? What are my rights? Christians serve a Lord who certainly did not stand on his rights when he went to the cross. Following the self-denial of Jesus, they will also ask, what right should I give up for the sake of others? And that's the very thing we're going to consider next week in chapter 9. Amen.